So it's not uncommon that uh, we see a lot of people with a simple muscular pain. Uh, it started with a sprain in, in the knee or hip or shoulder or back, and they continue taking this medication for years. The use of opioids has had a lot of attention lately, with worries about an epidemic of addiction in the US and maybe to a lesser extent around the world. Treatment for this is often talked about for the acute problem of overdose, or perhaps in terms of substitution, treatment for addiction. But for patients who are using opioids for pain management and wish to reduce their usage, there's much less attention paid and much less information available. A New Uncertainties article published on bmj.com sets out what's known, and crucially what's not known, about tapering opioids. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and I'm joined on the line by some of the authors of that article. Uh, first of all, we have Habinda Sandhu, who's Associate Professor in Health Psychology at the University of Warwick. Hi, Habinda. We're also joined by Sam Eldabi, a Professor of Anesthesia and Pain Medicine at James Cook University Hospital. Hi, Sam. Hi, how are you doing? And last of our authors is Andrea Furlan, Associate Professor of Medicine at the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute. Hi, Andrea. Hi, good morning. We're also joined by Colin, who's a patient who's had experience of tapering his opioid use. Colin, thank you very much for, for taking some time to tell us about your experience there. Thank you. What was it that you were prescribed opioids for and how long were you on them? I was prescribed opioids for uh, back damage uh, due to working in heavy industry, x-raying uh, castings uh, for 30 odd years. Uh, and I ended up with sciatica down uh, both legs. And so I was given opioids for that. And the uh, uh, treatment at the time was bed rest as well. So I wasn't getting any exercise either. Mm. And how long were you, were you taking that treatment for? Getting on for 10 years. So quite some time. Uh, yes, yes, I got very depressed and uh, ended up going in and out of mental health hospital. Um, we'll we'll get into that a bit more. Thank you for explaining. Sam, Habinder and Andrea, um, to any of you, how common um, are the, the kind of the story that Colin just um, described there? You know, someone who's taken uh, opioids for, for as long as a decade... Uh, if I may pick it up from a UK perspective, then Andrea, you may uh, explain it from uh, uh, the Canadian perspective. It, it's not unusual or it wasn't unusual for uh, people to be prescribed uh, strong opioids or moderate strength opioids for low back pain about 10 years ago. And once prescribed, the prescriptions were repeated uh, regularly without necessarily asking the question whether uh, this is of a particular benefit or not and whether uh, the, the doses were uh, in our experience just increased because most people develop uh, tolerance to the drug and the dose is, dose is increased without the question being asked whether 
uh, that needs to happen or whether the drug is effective or not. So, no, un- unfortunately, this was not an unusual scenario. Mm. And Andrea, is that uh, the case in, in North America as well? Yes, it's exactly the same thing in North America. For example, in Canada, we know that 13% of the population received uh, at least uh, one prescription of opioids in in a year, which is a lot. Uh, Most of those are given for acute pain, but then once they're started on acute pain, it's hard to stop because someone continues renewing that prescription and continue prescribing. So it's not uncommon that uh, we see a lot of people with a simple muscular pain. Um, it started with a sprain in in the knee or hip or shoulder or back, and they continue taking this medication for years. Mm. Yeah, it's it's very common. Um, Colin, if we we turn back to you now, what was it that made you decide to um, question? that medication prescription and and start thinking that perhaps it was time to start tapering down your, your opioid use? Well, firstly, I uh, started questioning the, uh, the continuous bed rest, which I was getting. And so I started uh, going out with a group of uh, fellow sufferers and we went out for walks. And uh, this help considerably and so um, I tried to um, uh, negotiate with my uh, GPs etc to um, reduce my intake of of painkillers. Yeah and uh, so it was you that brought it up with the GP it wasn't it wasn't the GP saying to you perhaps this is time to change. No, oh no, no, they weren't. Uh, the only time they changed was when I got, uh, uh, you know, uh, bad side effects from particular painkillers, uh, you know, like, um, uh, you know, developing stomach ulcers from uh, some of the other uh, painkillers that I was on at the time, because I was on... Uh, four or five different painkillers sure. at one time. And again, Sam and, and Andrea, what what would it be, do you think, um, from your perspective, that might make you consider that a patient of yours or a patient that you see uh, should start thinking uh, about tapering their, their usage? Sam, do you want to go first? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose the first, there are a number of questions that I normally ask. First is, uh, what are what are, the, are these drugs effective? Are they reducing the pain? And that's the first question. And uh, in, in, in a lot of the cases, the answer is they, they take the edge off it, but they're not that useful. The next question is to do with side effects. And uh, there are side effects that most people who have used opioids or use opioids are familiar with, like uh, constipation, for example. There are some that people are not very familiar with and don't relate to the use of opioids, like uh, sweating. And then there are side effects that uh, aren't easily detected without uh, uh, tests, so like, like sort of 
uh, changes in the hormonal function of the body. And it, the decision of when to stop or when to start to reduce the opioids is uh, to do with primarily are they effective and if they are not, then uh, we, we consider the reduction in balance with all the other uh, adverse events that can be caused by these drugs. For some patients, they are uh, moderately effective, but the adverse events or the side effects are uh, much more difficult to tolerate than the efficacy of the drug itself. Thank you. And Andrea, anything else to, to add from your side? Usually how I explain to the patients who have been on opioids for a long time is that um, it might be a problem of indication. Maybe the opioid is not indicated to your problem anymore, like in the case of calling that it was a muscle pain. So you need to treat as a muscle pain and the opioid will be just masking your pain. Or another problem of indication is that uh, uh, for headaches, for example, uh, opioids can make it worse, can, ma uh, can make the headache worse fibromyalgia, they can also make it worse. So if it's a problem of indication, we need to stop the opioid. Another problem is when they have uh, adverse effects, like uh, what Sam explained. And the adverse effects can be something like constipation, nausea, itching, sweating, but can also be other side effects that people are not used to, like uh, low testosterone, we call this hypogonadism, or an immune problem, they're starting to have a lot of infections, or they're developing sleep apnea, or uh, opioid-induced hyperalgesia, which is pain caused by opioids. A third uh, indication to taper opioids that I tell my patients is you are at too much risk. So I'm putting you at risk of uh, uh, abusing, overdosing, dying, uh, or even developing an addiction, we call this opioid use disorder. And last is when the patient's preference, they want to try a lower dose, they heard that uh, maybe they are too much, and if the patient is requesting, then we try the tapering. So those are the four things that I usually have in my mind when we try to approach the patient to convince them to taper the opioids. Thank you, Andrea. That's really good. Um, Colin, if we can turn back to you again. Um, when you first started tapering your opioid usage. Yeah, how did that happen? Um, you know, what strategy did you use? Um, and how did it feel? What what were some of the, the symptoms of that? Well, I was uh, on uh, antidepressants as well at the time. So I started to uh, taper, you know, everything. Uh, to, uh, you know, try and reduce, say I was suffering from constipation, sleep apnea, sweating, and all the other things that have been mentioned. And uh, so, so uh, you know, just try and cut in the dosage in half and uh, see if I could uh, survive on that. And then, uh, you know, continuing to cut you know, the next month, you know, and uh, that's the way I I reduced it and increasing my uh, exercise routine because it took me two and a half years to get to actually see a paying consultant because of the waiting lists at the time. Mm -hmm. 
Sam, can I ask you, those kind of symptoms that, that Colin talked about there, what's going on physiologically when someone starts reducing their, their opioid use? Um, and, and how does that you know, then manifest in terms of, of symptoms? What we normally see is a, an increase in the function of the sympathetic system, an overactivity of the sympathetic system when the opioids are reduced, and that manifests as a, a tachycardia, a, a sweating, a feeling of uh, nausea, perhaps uh, diarrhea. So it's all about the, uh, the sympathetic system going into overdrive. However, in our experience, most of these symptoms are uh, temporary and eventually sort of uh, two or three months into the process, the symptoms uh, disappear uh, entirely. I don't know whether that's your experience, Colin, or whether you uh, one of the people who had prolonged symptoms. No, that is my experience. That uh, yeah, the constipation reduced, and uh, so uh, the uh, uh, diarrhea. Uh, uh, sort of went away after a time and uh, I was sleeping better and uh, uh, could be more comfortable, you know, generally. And so given those symptoms, which sound like they might be problematic for some people and could carry on for some time, um, Colin, what strategies did you find to, to mitigate them um, to maybe help cope with the with that transition? Well, I was uh, part of self-help groups uh, in Coventry, and so uh, what what we did, we, we got all sorts of uh, distraction techniques. I joined a choir and uh, things like that to, to take my mind off the... Uh, off the pain and the discomfort and uh, that way I got uh, uh, communicating with people again because I'd, uh, you know, really withdrawn myself from community. Thank you. And so th that's the strategy that um, that Colin used. Uh, do, we, do you know any other strategies that, that people use and is there any evidence for, for how uh, efficacious they are? Um. Okay, so um, in terms of what's currently available or has been researched, uh, there are uh, sort of groups of interventions, um, including behavioural interventions, which involve cognitive behavioural therapy components, meditation, um, things like motivational interviewing, um, and as Colin said, sort of distraction and, and education around self-management. There's also... Um, research uh, looking at uh, detoxification, acupuncture, um, opioid rotation as well as, as a way of helping people to taper and support them. Um, unfortunately, the evidence is quite weak. Most of the studies are, are um, not powered sufficiently enough um, and for various reasons. Follow-up um, in these um, studies are, are quite short, so four months or less. Um, people tend to drop out. We got withdrawal of the study. Um, people experiencing withdrawal symptoms, which also can lead to higher dropout as well. And also recruitment into these studies can also be uh, difficult. 
Um, but recently, with the media coverage of and highlighting the, uh, the issue that we have with opiates, um, hopefully that could be a positive change uh, in terms of recruitment into future trials. Great, thank you. And uh, we're going to get into talk about one trial in particular uh, in a little bit. Um, but bef- before we, we get to that, Colin, how did you get on with with the reduction um, in your, your opioid use? Did you, uh, you know, you, you said you experienced those symptoms for a while, um, but were you able to kind of carry on that tapering? And how was your pain management um during that yes i was able to um carry on that tapering uh one of the other um uh tablets that i was taking at the time uh uh copoxamol uh uh that was helping me at the uh, at the time but uh, then just after i uh uh Started cutting back on it, then they banned it uh, over here, so uh, so I couldn't use that. Uh, but uh, by that time, I, I'd already got in place all sorts of uh, things like playing computer games and all, all sorts of other things that could distract me from, uh, you know, the uh, symptoms. And um, well, Habinda or or Sam or Andrea, um, the 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 what Colin described there was the the fact that um, you know he did need some some distraction for his symptoms and and something else to to help manage uh, the pain. So I'm just wondering, you know, what what other things do people have to think about? Um, despite the, the reduction in, in opioids about, you know, that kind of holistic management of a patient? From a clinician perspective, we need to be there for the patient during the tapering, supporting them, <clears throat> seeing them more often, because during the tapering, there are two main things that happen. One is the withdrawal symptoms that the patients will have, and we will, uh, we have a lot of techniques, medications and non-medications that we can give to the patients to help them with this phase of withdrawal because it's temporary. We need to tell the education, a lot of information to the patient and helping them to stick with the goals because it will be hard for the patient to go through the tapering uh, phase because mostly because of the withdrawals. Mm. But the other thing that we also need to help the patient is to manage their pain. Because if they have a muscle pain, arthritis, a nerve pain, what else are we going to give to them to help them treat their pain that is not opioids? So is it exercise? Is it mindfulness meditation? Is it a neuropathic pain medications? Is it a surgery, a nerve block, an injection? So we need to be there to help our patients. We need to be very supportive and help our patients to achieve their goals. Yeah, I, I agree. I think this is a very important point is supporting people through the tapering is a very important issue. Mm. And I, we, we've been talking about things that probably happen a lot in general practice here. But some of the, the stuff that you talked about there, um, Andrea, would be uh, probably not managed um, in general practice in the same way. So I just wonder practically, um, you know, how could a GP go about uh, uh, 
helping a patient with that? I suppose it is entirely about uh, spending time offering advice and offering reassurance uh, that you can expect uh, withdrawal symptoms, that they will happen, that they will fade with time and that uh, you you can continue. A lot of patients are worried about the impact of reducing their opioid on the pain and uh, most of the evidence shows that the yes, the, the, there may be uh, some uh, pain uh, exacerbation or increase during the tapering but in the long term, most people will tell you that their pain is either the same or ever so slightly improved after they've given up on the on the opioids. So it is that kind of reassurance uh, that you're not doing your body any harm by doing this. Mm. And given the difficulty um, with some of the those symptoms and and you know people's worries about their pain, how many people are actually able to taper their opioids? Do we have any sort of data about how successful um, that process can be? The goal of the tapering can it, it may not be zero. Uh, just cutting the dose by half is a good goal and uh, maybe they, they, some people will need opioids for the rest of their life. I don't think the message should be that everybody who is on opioids should be tapered to zero. I believe that there are uh, a, a group of patients with chronic pain, very hard to manage without opioids, but maybe they don't need to be on high doses. Uh, I tell my patients reducing 50% or 80% or even 90% may be an achievable goal and you will feel less side effects and putting you at less risks without uh, with the same benefits uh, and that's what usually they say I don't know why I was on a high dose because I'm feeling the same with a uh, one-tenth of the original dose mm. I was referred to a uh, surgeon who tried to relieve my uh, sciatic nerves uh, but that was unsuccessful and uh, I uh, took myself to acupuncture and chiropractors to try and uh, improve my uh, 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 stature, you know, because I was bent over with pain and that. And uh, so that's the sort of thing that I went to, but uh, none of it was successful. Uh, only... Uh, distraction techniques really worked with me. Mm. But you were able to reduce your opioid um, usage? Yes, I reduced them till I I got to the stage where I was just using them occasionally if I had a really bad uh, uh, day. And, uh, and now I don't use them at all. I don't use painkillers. Through all this process, you've talked about some of the things that help distraction and acupuncture and things. Uh, it seems like the social element was quite important to you as well. So I just wonder, you know, for patients um, and for doctors who are helping their patients uh, go through this, uh, what do you? What did you find useful and what would you like to tell people about? Well, as I said earlier, uh, I used uh, self-help groups uh, you know, so I found other people with similar conditions and, uh, you know, we uh, socialised and, uh, uh, you know, exchanged uh, techniques and that. 
so that that has always been very useful. We are social animals, so uh, you know, uh, if you if you're isolated, you think you're the only one in the world with this problem, then uh, you know you're just going to go downhill, which is what I did for a time. And Habinda, do you um, you know from from your perspective, is that kind of social support really useful? Uh, is that something that you hear about? And um, you know, is there any evidence for that as well? Uh, absolutely. So if we look at the evidence from the self-management literature for managing pain, um, group programs are shown to be very effective. And as Colin said, it's it's having that social support. Quite often with chronic pain, it's seen as the invisible condition. So for people to be able to connect with others who are going through a similar thing, um, can really help motivate them in, uh, first of all, sort of normalising what they're going through, but also motivate them to change their behaviours and start to um, manage their pain using other techniques. And in this case, very much, um, you know, looking at reducing opiates and uh, looking at ways of managing pain without relying on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what what's going on in the sort of, the world of research now. What are we looking at that um, that might help answer these and and uh, answer some of the uncertainties that was the kind of basis for for commissioning this article? Yeah, so I think as as you mentioned earlier about the whole holistic approach, so it's um, a, a big gap that exists at the moment. Is if if we are reducing opiates, what else can clinicians um, offer to their patients? Um, so the research now is looking into those alternative strategies to manage pain. We have a study currently in the UK, I watch study, Improving the Wellbeing of Opioid-Treated Chronic Pain, funded by the National Institute of Health Research, and it's a randomised controlled trial. And we're testing an intervention that we've developed which incorporates education, combining behavioural techniques and self-management of pain is delivered within a group setting, plus there's one-to-one support. The the group sessions are delivered by a trained nurse and also, very importantly, someone who has actually been through the experience, like Colin, of um, having opiates and reducing as well. And we've developed an app which um, the nurse uses to generate the tapering plan. So we're actually in the recruitment phase. Um, Our target is 468 uh, people. Um, And actually, we're just coming towards the end of our recruitment at the end of this year. So we have the participants now involved. um, We are doing the last bits of recruitment, but um, results of the study then should be out in 2020. Um, where we'll be able to see how effective and more importantly cost-effective as well uh, the intervention is. Thanks, Habinda. Um, so that sounds like a really multifactorial intervention that you're testing there. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing the results when they come out in a, in a few years. So we're coming to the end of this podcast, but I've got one last question, um, maybe for you, Andrea. Um, could you just give us a bottom line here. Can you sum this up for us? What what should um, doctors listening to this take away? Yeah, so my key message for clinicians is that uh, 
they may have patients that they are prescribing opioids, uh, consider reducing the dose or eliminating the opioid, not for every single patient, but think about some patients that don't need this medication anymore for those reasons that I spoke before, the indication, the harms, the side effects, or the patient's preference. Uh, and if they decide to do the taper, do it slowly, supporting the patient, pausing the taper if needed. You don't need to go to zero. You may, you know, reduce the dose and stay at that for a couple of, you know, time. Uh, but think about it because just maintaining the status quo for every patient for the rest of their lives, you may be putting them at risk, at harms, and doing more um, uh, complications to them that benefits. You've been listening to Habinda Sandhu, Samal Dabi, Andrea Ferlin, and of course Colin, talking about the practice article, what interventions are effective to taper opioids in patients with chronic pain. That's it for this podcast. We'll be back very soon, hearing from women who are part of the Sling the Mesh campaign as a result of problems associated with the vaginal mesh that they'd had implanted. That's to run alongside the investigation which we've just published. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on that. To find our full back catalogue, have a look at bmj.com slash podcasts. Hundreds of episodes, all available for free. Until next time, I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. Thanks for listening.